When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order. When the time comes to plan your next big getaway, know we got a destination idea for you. Orlando. Just think about it. The thrills at their 15 world-class theme parks, followed by awesome outdoor adventures, amazing food festivals, and top-notch dining spots. Orlando has all that and much more than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. That's visitorlando.com for everything you need for an amazing getaway. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8-Side Network. David Falk joins us on Sports Byline, basketball super agent who has represented Michael Jordan during Jordan's entire NBA career, and he has also represented more than 100 NBA players, including Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Allen Iverson, and James Worthy. And during his career in the 90s, he was often considered the second most powerful person in the NBA behind the commissioner, David Stern. He was listed among the 100 most powerful people in sports for 12 straight years, and he also negotiated professional sports' first $100 million contract for Alonzo Mourning as part of an unprecedented free agency period during which his company, Fame, changed the entire salary structure of the NBA, negotiating more than $400 million in contracts for its free agent clients in a six-day period. I ask respectfully, David, has there ever been any consideration of having you negotiate a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you asked that question. I actually went to Israel last spring for about a week on a, um, on a trip to try to understand better the very thorny issues um, that exist over there. And we had some briefings before we went uh, on the two-state solution and the one-state solution, and um, I honestly came back probably more unsure of what the right approach to resolve those problems are than before I went. But um, it's a fascinating uh, challenge. Uh, you know, it's one that's gone on literally for 2,000 years. And um, uh, you know, it remains one of the most um, you know, difficult issues that we face in the world um, yeah, you know, as we seek world peace. So, um uh, dip- diplomatic negotiations are not my forte, uh, but uh, I'm very, very sensitive to the problem. Let's go back to where it all began. You were raised in a middle-class Jewish family on Long Island, New York. Your dad owned a couple of butcher shops, and your mother, Pearl, had two master's degrees, spoke six languages, and had worked as an interpreter in World War II for Nelson Rockefeller in Latin American affairs. Tell me a little bit more about your mother and your relationship with her. Well, my mom, both of my parents are first-generation Americans. Their, their parents came over from uh, Eastern Europe uh, in the early 1900s, 
Uh, my grandfather, Joseph Weber, uh, was a scholar in Poland uh, and raised five children. Uh, they all graduated college at a time that very few women went to college. My mom graduated Hunter College at age 19 as a major in Greek and Latin in the classics. Um, and there was a high degree of, um, of emphasis on education and achievement uh, throughout the family. Um, it's a gene that my grandfather passed on to my mom, and uh, I inherited from my mom, and unfortunately passed it on to my older daughter, Dana. Uh, and I would say that, you know, I would describe myself as a, a compulsive perfectionist. And my mom, uh, who's an extremely uh, talented woman, uh, extremely well-read in the classics and, and culture, um, she had very, very high expectations. Uh, and she was very loving and supportive, but she had an expression that she imbued uh, with me when I was a very, very young child that's been my life, my lifelong mantra, uh, always shoot for the stars and never sell for second best. I know you said nothing was really ever good enough for her. That can be very difficult in a, a parental relationship with a child. How challenging was that for you at times? You know, it's interesting because they often describe, you know, child development as a question of nature or nurture. Uh, and I think I had both. I think that um, inherently, you know, my DNA that my mom uh, passed on to me, I'm an inherently very competitive person, a very goal-oriented person, a very achievement-oriented person. And at the same time, I lived in a household where that was also um, it also um, emphasized uh, in our house. And so I sort of got it internally and externally. And my mother was extremely loving, but, you know, because of the background that we grew up in, my dad probably never made more than $30,000 a year. I don't think he finished high school. Uh, you know, she felt that the way to improve, you know, our our family's position was through education. Um, and so she, she was very demanding. Um, and I'm very demanding of myself. You know, I find it almost humorous that in the world of sports, you know, because everything you do is so widely covered by the media. There are very few professions. I mean, if a, if a doctor gives you advice or an accountant, it's not in the Wall Street Journal the next day to say, hey, you know, Ron, you should have, uh, you know, put more money in your 401k. But in the world of sports, every deal you make, every position you take is scrutinized. And what I find interesting is most of the people that are doing the scrutiny really don't know you personally. Some of them have never met you, and even a few have never even talked to you, but it doesn't inhibit them from from making observations about you. And I like to tell people that, you know, what has driven me in my own business to do the kinds of things that I've been fortunately able to do um, isn't being greedy. It's not being ambitious. It's not that the money has driven me. It's really, I think, just a psychological desire to, please my mom, you know, to, to feel that I'm doing the best that I can, the best that I'm able to accomplish. Um, that's, that's what really drives me. And I really don't take a lot of time to be concerned when people write that I'm greedy or arrogant or, you know, nonconformist, um, you know, that they're, they're entitled to their opinion. It might be a more informed opinion if they ever talk to me, but at the end of the day, I'm, co I'm comfortable with what I've done. Um, and I know that I know what drives what drives my decisions, um, and my clients know what drives my decisions, and that's that's the most important thing to me. 
One of the things I've always respected and admired about you, David, is you're consistent. And that's not something people always uh, can be or will do, uh, especially in something like negotiations. Where did that consistency come from? You know, it's very interesting. When I teach, I teach negotiations um, uh, at my law school at GW, George Washington University. I have a program called <clears throat> the Falk Academy of Management and Entrepreneurship. And when I teach the students about negotiations, I tell them this isn't like, you know, you read a lot of different books about negotiations and how to do it. And, and I find them interesting because the most important quality I think you have to have as negotiators credibility, you know, People have to believe that if you say, I think it's going to cost you know $100 to buy this product, that they don't think you mean $50 or $30. And so you have to be consistent, and particularly in, in negotiations in the field of sports, where you're dealing with the same group of people repeatedly. You're dealing with the same owners and general managers over and over again. They have to know that when you say something, that you mean it. And so I strive for consistency as I've gotten older. I've strived very hard to make my final deal as close to my original offer as possible. Like in a perfect world, you know, if someone truly trusted you and they said, how much is it going to cost to make this deal? And you said X, they'd know you meant exactly X, Um, you know, and not a dollar more, not a dollar less. Ironically, that is really how I would describe Michael Jordan's first deal with Nike. I had a 10-year track record with a gentleman named Rob Strasser, who was the head of Nike marketing. We did a lot of deals together. And over time, he came to know that I was going to be aggressive on behalf of my clients, but keep the deals within the bounds, the boundaries of fairness. So when Michael came out, I really don't think he ever made a counteroffer. He said, what's it going to take to sign him? I gave him a number. I gave him a program where they're going to have to create a line of shoes and clothing for Michael. Told him they're going to have to spend a million dollars in the first six months to promote the line. And I, I don't think he made a counter. And to me, that's a perfect deal. You know, a perfect deal is when the, there's enough trust engendered in the relationship that you're not what I would call playing ping pong. You're not going back and forth 50 times and splitting the difference and, you know, coming in high because you think that you have to put some fat in the deal. Those are all techniques that people use, but on a sophisticated level, you know, when I'm dealing when I'm dealing with billionaire owners who own sports teams, or I'm dealing with the chairman of Fortune 100 companies, they don't have a lot of time to play ping pong, and they want to know they want to they want to get right to the point, and so do I. And so I think consistency um, breeds credibility, and and it promotes. It promotes deals where people think that you're you understand what's at stake and you're gonna you're gonna get it done. Um, people expect that when you're representing clients that you're gonna try to you know promote their interests, but at the same time, if you want to do business with companies over and over again, they have to know that you're being fair. David Falk is with us. We only have about 40 seconds before we have to break, David. But one of the things that influenced you in the early part of your life about becoming an agent was your mother was an avid New York Knicks fan. When I read that, I kind of smiled and laughed a little bit. What drew her to basketball? And I understand the Knicks, but what about basketball? You know, it's a question I never I, I was probably a basketball fan before she was. Um, and growing up in New York, I was a a phenomenal Los Angeles Lakers fan because my idol from the time probably I was 
I don't know, 10, 11 years old, was Jerry West, uh, who ironically uh, I consider a very special friend, someone I enormously admire and like. Uh, and his consistency, uh, you know, in, in the playoffs, he was sort of like big game James Worthy long before James Worthy. In the, in the playoffs, Jerry was incredibly efficient and unfortunately the Celtics had teams that were just deeper than the Lakers but he was my idol I was a huge Lakers fan and I think that my passion for basketball sort of rubbed off backwards on my mom Uh, and she loved the Knicks Uh, she kept she used to listen to the games when Marv Albert did the games on radio Ron not on TV on radio and she would keep stats during the game Uh, and she her favorite player was Walt Frazier probably Willis Reed second. Um, and I know Clyde quite well, but being a, a Lakers fan, uh, you know, I'd say Jerry and Elgin Bell, those are my two guys, uh, you know, when I was growing up. And so it was like a sort of fun family rivalry internally. David Falk is with us here on Sports Byline USA. We're talking about his life and also about his career. And we continue across the country and around the world. We've got you on America's sports talk show, Sports Byline. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. David Falk has joined us on Sports Byline USA, basketball super agent who has represented uh, many, many, many athletes, uh, in not only in basketball, but primarily in basketball, primarily Michael Jordan. He's been with uh, Michael for his entire career. Also, you had a friend uh, who, in the early part of your life, uh, attorney Reed Kahn, he says he remembers you proclaiming that you wanted to represent professional athletes in the fourth grade. And I was trying to go back and think, fourth grade, how old would that have made you? About nine years old, eight or nine years old. You know, I always <laughs> wanted to be a lawyer. You know, people ask, like, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I never wanted to be an astronaut. Didn't think I was good enough to be a baseball player. I didn't want to be a fireman. You know, I don't know why I wanted to be a lawyer. And in the fifth grade, ironically, um, we had this, custom, if you will, at the end of school, sort of like when you're a senior and you have everyone sign your yearbook. In the fifth and sixth grade, they these little books are about five by nine with colored pages. They're called autograph books. At the end of the school year, 
you'd have all your classmates sign your book. And this one gentleman named Gregory Mallow, who wasn't really a close friend, wrote in my book that I should be a, a lawyer because I was a good arguer. Now, he wasn't very good at <laughs> linguistics. <laughs> uh, but um, I don't ask you why that, that notion stuck in my mind. So from an early age, I always wanted to be a lawyer. When I really got into sports, probably, you know, around 10, 11 years old, my early teens, I had this sort of romantic notion. God, what if you could combine a career in law, you know, with a career in sports? Um, and when I got to college at Syracuse, the very first day of school, uh, uh, and on my dorm floor, I met the two star freshman recruits, Gregory the Kid Coles and Paul Petrowski. They were, they were roommates down the hall. And literally from the first day, we became friends. We're close friends to this day. Uh, you know, we're almost we're all heading into our 70th birthday. And I had this notion, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if we all became seniors and they got drafted, if I could be their agent? Um, by the time I got to be a senior, I realized what a lot of young agents don't today, that I had no clue how to, how to do what I needed to do to, do, to represent <laughs> them, so I didn't. And I, I marched on to law school. And in law school, I really started networking. I met a lot of very, very prominent people in the field of sports at the time that when sports agency was in its nascent development. I mean, I would say probably the business was invented in around 1968, 69 by Mark McCormick, uh, who's a gentleman I have, you know, undying respect for. He, he basically started the business and expanded the boundaries of what someone who represents players could do. Um, and so I met, I met Bob Wolf, who was a very famous agent who represented Larry Bird and Doug Flutie and Derek Sanderson. I met Larry Fleischer, who founded the NBA Players Union. I met a gentleman named Hamilton Carruthers, who was a very senior lawyer at Covington and Burling in Washington, who had a young associate helping him manage the NFL legal business named Paul Tagliabue, <laughs> who became hmm. the commissioner. I met the head of same lawyer on the, who did the same thing for baseball. And all these people basically said to me, you know, look, first of all, you didn't go to Harvard or Yale. You know, you have a very modest, you know, background at Syracuse and GW. And the business was so small that nobody was hiring people. It's not like today we had these mega agencies. At the top of my career in 2001, SFX Sports had 900 employees and 1,100 clients. You know, back in the 70s, you know, people had – you know, maybe an assistant or secretary. Uh, it was tiny, and so nobody was hiring. Um, and that's that was the environment that I tried to start my career. Tell me about the first time you ever met Michael Jordan, and what was it about that meeting or meeting each other that really uh, made it feel right for both of you? You know, it's a great question. I have to be very modest. In the day, in the in the eighties into the nineties, at the top universities in America that had the premier basketball programs, University of North Carolina with Coach Smith, Duke University with Coach K, Georgetown University with John Thompson, um, Kansas, uh, Indiana with Coach Knight. The coaches did not allow recruiting. It just simply wasn't allowed. And they would tell you flat out that if you tell me that you inadvertently bumped into Michael Jordan's mother at the food line in Wilmington, you're out. You know, no recruiting whatsoever. At the end of the year, the coaches would invite you in for literally one hour. It was like arguing before the Supreme Court. 
and you had an hour to sit down with the player and his family and the coach and present your credentials, your track record, and explain what you thought you could do. And so there was really nothing we did at the meeting with Michael different than we did with any other North Carolina player, whether it was James Worthy or Phil Ford or anyone. Um, we presented our credentials, presented our track record of representing high first-round draft picks, both in negotiations and off the court in marketing. And Coach Smith recommended us. And if Coach Smith didn't recommend us, Michael wouldn't pick us. Uh, same thing with Patrick Ewing and, and John Thompson. Um, the players really trusted their coaches. They didn't know much about agents. Um, and it was clean. And most of the players basically met the top four people in the business, which is you know, ourselves, Bob Wolf, Larry Fleischer, and a break-off firm from ProServe called Octagon. Um, and you knew that you were in select company, that all the four people could do a good job. We happened to have the best track record of negotiating rookie contracts. And and it wasn't that Coach Smith liked us. Um, I don't think he really liked agents at all, but I think he respected the work we had done for other players who came before Michael. I know you once said we decided to stretch the envelope after you had signed the deal uh, with Michael with Nike. And instead of calling up the companies and asking them how much they would pay Michael Jordan, we called them up and asked them to make a presentation and explain what they could do to promote him. And needless to say, your quote is, this got a lot of quizzical replies. What was the nature of negotiations at that particular time when you started uh, taking him around, Michael, and putting the, uh, the life of Michael Jordan together? Well, you have to understand, two years before we represented Michael, we represented James Worthy, who was the number one pick in the draft. Uh, he's the only player, Ron, in the history of the NBA to be drafted number one by a team that had just won the championship. It's a very unique set of circumstances. And with Worthy, um, we sort of told the companies, we're not going to make offers. We will accept offers starting in six figures. There was only one player in the NBA back then who was making six figures, and that was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was Worthy's teammate. And people thought we literally had lost it. And I told him, if you don't think he's worth it, if you don't think number one pick on the Los Angeles Lakers playing with Magic Johnson and Kareem, then don't make an offer. So Worthy signed the highest deal in the history of the NBA for $1.2 million for eight years, $150,000 a year. And then when Michael came out two years later, I don't think anyone thought when he was drafted number three by the Bulls that Michael had the ability to be as good a player as James Worthy. They were all wrong, but that was that was what the, they believed. But I knew that Michael, you know, selling shoes isn't about who's the best player. It's about who's the most exciting player, who generates the most excitement when you watch him. And having watched Michael for three years at North Carolina, having watched him in the Olympics, which was truly his coming out party in front of a worldwide audience, you could tell this guy was going to really be entertaining. You know, they, they gave Dominique Wilkins the nickname, the human highlight film, but when you watch the last dance, you watch highlights of Jordan. He, he's done things that are just incredible to watch. And so we told the companies that, you know, we wanted to know, we knew that what Michael could do to promote their products but I wanted to know what the companies were willing to do, what kind of commitments were they willing to make in marketing and promotion to promote Michael. And they looked at me quizzically because nobody was doing anything. And you have to understand that in 1984, the greatest players in the NBA, Jabbar, Magic, Bird, Dr. J, 
Moses Malone. None of them had their own shoes. Not one of them. Not only that, not one of them had a commercial for shoes. They just wore the shoes and got paid. And so we asked Nike to promote Michael. Nike was a tiny company in 1984. I don't really know what the sales were. I would guess like $30 million. Today, they were you know, $100 billion. And they really needed Michael. And I felt that based on my relationship with Strasser, that they'd be willing to be more flexible and more innovative because they needed to be. They, didn't, they weren't the official shoe of the NBA. That was Converse. Converse was also the official shoe of the Olympics in 1984. And ironically, the official shoe of North Carolina. So they needed to do something special, and they were willing to step up and do what Converse and some of the other companies weren't willing to do. And three billion dollars later, we have one of the most successful brands in, in the history of sports, and probably the single most successful marketing affiliation ever in, in, in sports in history. David Falk is with us on Sports Byline USA. We'll continue talking about his life and his career as we continue with more of you and America's Sports Talk Show. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. David Falk is with us on Sports Byline USA. We've been talking a lot about Michael Jordan and about negotiating big-time contracts, but I want to ask you something. The success that you had and the philosophy that you had in getting the contracts for uh, Michael Jordan and also others uh, that you've represented, has that trapped you to any degree, that reputation and expectation by your other clients to get the same thing? No, I mean, I think that I think my clients know that I am as competitive in what I do as they are in what they do. And I think you know, most people acknowledge that Michael is the GOAT, is the greatest of all time. No one has an expectation. And I tell them flat out, if that's what you expect, don't hire me. You know, I'm not, I'm not capable enough of turning a player who gets drafted 15 into Michael Jordan. But a lot of agents today, most of the agents, approach these young players you know, with, with false dreams of what they're going to do for them. And I think you're in a relationship that you hope lasts a lifetime. My very first client in basketball was a man named John Lucas in 1976. We talked on Father's Day. 
with he and his wife, Debbie. And, you know, it, it's very special to me that our relationship is, you know, coming on, you know, for 45 years. And to maintain that kind of relationship, you have to have a very basic sense of candor and trust, transparency and trust. And to me, if you if you make representations at the front end of the relationships that you just can't live up to, you'll never earn the player's trust. And to me, I'd rather not do it at all than to feel that you're, you're starting a relationship on a shaky foundation and eventually you're going to lose, you're going to lose your client. So it takes a lot of discipline. I'll tell you like a great story. In 1993, the Heisman Trophy winner in football was Desmond Howard from Michigan. Desmond grew up in Cleveland and his godmother worked for the, what was then the largest law firm in America, Jones Day. And it was a, a lawyer at Jones Day that his godmother worked for named Dick Saylor, who was a very, very senior lawyer, very intelligent man in intellectual property. And he was trying to screen the agents for Desmond. So he went to the three owners of the teams in Cleveland, the Indians in, in uh, baseball, the Browns in football, and the Cavs in basketball, and said, if Desmond were your son, who would you want to represent him? And I've never done baseball, done some football. Um, and they all said, you know, gosh, I understand the guy who's the best person in the business is David Falk. So we got invited in to meet Desmond. Uh, Dick grilled us. Uh, he was a terrific guy, very ethical. And we basically had Desmond Howard. And at the very last three minutes of our meeting with Desmond, he asked what I like to call Ron, the question. The client's going to ask you a question that if you answer honestly, you're not going to, he's not going to pick you. And if you lie to him, he is going to pick you. And you have to make a moral decision. Do you want to get the client at all costs or do you want to start a relationship off you know, with honesty and integrity? And so his question was, where do you think I'll go in the draft? Now, I knew that he expected to go number one because he was the Heisman Trophy winner. But to the best of my recollection, there's only been two or three wide receivers in the history of football. One hadn't come out yet, which was Keyshawn Johnson. One was Dave Parks by the Niners back in the probably early 60s. Wide receivers generally don't go number one. And I told him that. I said, I know you want me to tell you you can go one, but you're going to go between four and six. And he didn't pick us. <laughs> and if I had to again, I would tell him the exact same thing because you can't have a successful relationship that's built on false promises. And it's frustrating because the players, everyone's telling them what they want to hear. They're, they're stroking them from morning till night. And I think it's difficult to manage someone if you don't tell them the truth. I would say on the converse that what's made my relationship so special with people like Jordan and Ewing and John Thompson is they knew in crunch time I would never lie to them, that I'd always tell them what I thought was in their best interest. Now, they didn't have to agree. You know, that's on them. But they needed to know that when they asked for advice, that I would give them my best advice. Now, the opposite of the Desmond Howard story is the John Thompson story with Patrick Ewing. When Patrick was a junior. One day out of left field, John just called me on the phone, was shooting the breeze, and he says, what do you think about Patrick leaving school as a junior? I said, I think it's a terrible idea. And he said, why? That's why I've never met him, but you know, I read in the Washington Post that he promised his mother he'd be the first person in his family to graduate from college, and his mom died in the middle of his junior year, his mom Dorothy. And John said, like, that's the best you got? You know, for a million dollars a year, he'd get plenty of education. We got this intense discussion that turned into an argument. 
and John is screaming at me. And John Thompson's a very intelligent man, but he's a very powerful man. And you don't want a guy like John screaming at you when he's your client. And he said, I thought you were my friend, and I'm asking you for your advice. And I know that you're telling me what you think I want to hear. But you're wrong. I don't want Patrick to come back to school. I want him to come out. There's too much. He can get hurt. He can have a bad year. Things can happen. He's at the top of his game, and he should take advantage of it. And I completely disagree with him. And I told him what I thought. And we went back and forth, and he is just cursing me up like a truck driver. And finally, you know, as much as I love John, you know, I hit my limit. I saw I said, John, honestly, do whatever the hell you want, but I'll tell you three things. Number one, Patrick is not going to get amnesia and forget how to play. Number two, the money's never going to go away for a generational player like Patrick Ewing. And number three, cover the risk of, of injury with an insurance policy. That's what I think. You should stay in school, but do whatever the hell you want. Hung up. And he stayed in school, and he got the highest contract, not the highest rookie contract. The next year, as a senior, he signed for 55% more money than Jabbar, who was the highest-paid NBA player in history, before he ever dribbled the ball. And, and, and he got a $5 million signing bonus, which I had bronzed, and I sent it to John, and I bought a little plaque, and I wrote, Dear John, I told you so. Love and kisses, David. <laughs> <laughs> he, put up, he put up the plaque, but not the note. And so <laughs> I take great pride in trying to be able to have a vision of the future you know, having done this so long, having worked for so many great players that have given whatever power and accolades I've received is a function of the power that the players have given me and the trust that they've placed in me to do the things that I've been able to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it, it challenges you, you know, as a human to, to be really disciplined and to tell the truth always. You know, there's, there's no substitute for telling the truth. I want to ask you a question about Michael. Just a brief answer on this, because i got some other things I want to get to. But uh, people will say, why is he so good? And I did an interview with him in the early part of his career in Chicago, and I'll never forget this. Uh, he said to me, when the game is on the line, I want to be the one to determine the outcome. If I succeed, I want the glory. If I fail... I'll take the blame. And as you know, in life, most people don't want to take the blame for something. That, to me, is the essence of what has made him so great. The other thing is, and I've talked to Steve Kerr about this, is that he always made other people around him uh, better than they actually were, and that he understood the game from moment to moment that he maybe had to make a basket, had to dive for a ball, had to do something. Am I correct in that observation? Absolutely. I think... I think what made Michael special, why there'll never be another Michael, is that he grew up in a very special family, you know, two-parent family, hardworking people. Um, he went to the University of North Carolina, played for one of the greatest college coaches of all time. He wasn't the best player on the team. He wasn't coddled by his coach. You know, he had to do all the things. He played with James Worthy. He played with Sam Perkins, who went one pick behind him in the draft. Brad Doherty, who went number one two years later. He was a very talented player, but he wasn't, didn't come to Carolina as the man. Worthy came to Carolina as the man. And Dean really pushed him, sort of like my mom pushed me, to be the best. And psychologically, obviously, he's very, he's very gifted athletically, but he's really smart, and he has a psychological makeup that enables him to will himself to achieve in the most 
dire circumstances. You watch the last dance, and you see he had 38 points in 44 minutes against Utah in 1997 when he had food poisoning. Now, 99.9% of athletes wouldn't have put on a uniform. They would have stayed in the, ho- in the hotel or in their bed uh, and, and gotten intravenous fluids. He goes out on the court and plays 44 minutes, scores 38 points. We could barely walk. And it was just pure mental drive, pure mental toughness. And I've never seen someone that has the combination of the physical ability he has and the mental toughness. Most of the time, you see players who are like a half a step below in talent, and they try to overcome their lack of athletic gifts by, by playing harder. Michael had both. And, and, um, and he had the pedigree from North Carolina where Dean really taught him like the game. I used to tell Dominique Wilkins, who's an incredibly gifted athlete, I say, Nick, when you can't jump, you won't be able to play in the NBA anymore. And you get mad and say, well, what about Michael? I said, well, Michael can't jump. He's going to be Larry Bird. He'll be the most fundamentally sound player in the league. You know, the jumping gives him an extra dimension, but he probably was the most fundamentally sound player of his generation. And that's a tribute, that's a tribute to the coaching that he received in college from Coach Smith. We've got three minutes left, and I want to talk about another one of your clients, Allen Iverson. I think it's safe to say that Michael Jordan represents one end of the basketball spectrum with his public acceptance and image, and that Iverson is really more of the current hip-hop basketball generation. Tell me a little bit about how you saw him and how you approached your representation of him. First of all, I think Allen invented the crossover between hip-hop and the NBA. He's sort of like if James Brown is the godfather of soul, Allen is the godfather of hip-hop and basketball. Allen was an incredibly gifted athlete. He was the, the state player of the year in both football and basketball as a quarterback. And uh, also, obviously, went to Georgetown, you know, one of the greatest coaches ever, John Thompson. And like Dean Smith, John was extremely disciplined with Allen. Allen, you know, Allen never missed a practice, was never late for practice at Georgetown once, ever. He was a very, very intelligent young man, but he came from a very unstructured background. I mean, his mom was like 14 years old when she had him. She was, he loved his mom. She's a fun lady, Ann Iverson, but she was almost like his sister. And so Alan was really different than a lot of the players that I worked for. And we had a great relationship, but, but he was just different. And I think as a manager, you can't treat every player the same because they're not the same. You have to treat them all well. You have to treat them all fairly, but you have to be able to relate to them on an individual basis. And I think to this day, if you take Jordan out of the mix, Allen is probably the most interesting performer in the NBA probably maybe ever. Um, I think he's revered today. Um, I think that if he had, if I were representing him today uh, and I'm not, you know, I think that he could make as much money as almost anyone currently playing in the NBA off the court. You know, I think his 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 legacy uh, in hip hop, which is an incredibly powerful force in our culture today, in music and apparel and style, um, he is the apostle of hip hop in the NBA. And pound for pound, maybe the greatest player ever. I mean, like, he was fearless. Uh, you know, he he was just incredible to watch on the court um but he was different he was different and i didn't have a chance to represent him his whole career his mother pulled the plug 
you know, sort of early on because we were a little too disciplined with his punting. Um, I think that probably was more to his detriment than mine, even though it broke my heart. Um, but uh, I, I have a great relationship with him. I respect him. I like him. I think he likes me. I think he knows we did a great job for him uh, in marketing him. And, um, and I think his popularity is immense. We only have about 30 seconds, and I'm just wondering, as you look upon your legacy, what is it that means the most to David Falk? That's easy. What means the most to me in sort of fulfilling my mother's legacy, my mother's legacy, is I think I like to feel that I've been a good teacher for my clients, that I've taught my clients the business of sports. Um, I can't coach them. I can't tell them how to shoot a jump shot. Um, and while I've been able to make them a lot of money, I think I think what's most meaningful to the ones that are special to me, to the to Michaels and the Patricks, to Elton Brand, Juwan Howard, uh, to Coach Thompson, I think I taught them the business of basketball, and that's something that I'm extremely proud of. It gives me immense personal satisfaction. David Halberstand once said about David Falk, David Falk helped revolutionize the process of representing a basketball player going into a team sport and creating the idea of the individual player as a commercial superstar. David, I want to thank you for your time. As always, I enjoy our conversations. Take care, my friend, and come back and join me again. Love to do it. I really appreciate it. David Falk with us, basketball super agent who represented and Michael Jordan during his entire career. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order.